Welcome to the On The Yard Podcast, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. I'm your host, Ashley Northington, and I'm here to connect you with the trends, news, and events happening across historically black and minority-serving colleges and universities. Tune in each week where we will give you a dose of HBCU leadership and culture, one episode at a time. Today, we will discuss a topic that is near and dear to my heart, and that is the legacy of underfunding historically Black colleges and universities. We're going to dig in deep to learn more about the history why these institutions keep getting shortchanged, and what leaders and advocates can do to address the harm. For those paying attention, the state of Maryland just settled a landmark discrimination suit worth $577 million with its four publicly funded HBCUs, Coppin State University, Bowie State University, Morgan State University, and the University of Maryland Eastern Shore. Now, a recent Tennessee General Assembly report has indicated that the state of Tennessee may owe um, Tennessee's only publicly funded HBCU, Tennessee State University, a sum of up to $544 million. To talk about the history of discriminatory spending practices and why uh, this typically happens to minority-serving insight institutions and to get more insight on what's happening in Tennessee, we are welcoming Tennessee State Representative Harold M. Love to On the Yard. Welcome, Representative Love. Uh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so glad you're here because I know that you are the best person to talk about what is happening in Tennessee. So to get us started and kick this off, I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. Talk about your role as a public official your connection to higher education as a whole, um, and your connection to this report and to Tennessee State University. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. My connection to Tennessee State uh, goes back to my father's mother, uh, Lillian Love, who actually was a student when it was a normal college for Negroes uh, to train teachers. And she finished there in 1915. Then as the school evolved into Tennessee A&I College, uh, my father was enrolled there as a student in 1939. He graduated, and my mother graduated from Tennessee State also. She returned to Tennessee State to teach mathematics. And after about 10 years of teaching, she realized that her students were not possessing the requisite skills to really uh, do well in her course And she traced it back to them not really being prepared in their K through 12 education. So as a result, she stopped being the math professor at Tennessee State and then took on the role of the director of the Upward Bound program at Tennessee State University, which was a pre-college program uh, designed to increase the number of first generation uh, students who were from underserved communities and uh, give them the requisite support system they needed from K through 12, or really from uh, 9 through 12, uh, high school, then also once they got into college through a program called Student Support Services, and then for middle school age, a program called Talent Search. So this became part of their 
their their obligation to catch students in middle school and take them all the way through that second year in college. Uh, understand that if they had success in that second year, then more than likely they would go ahead and graduate from college. So that became my primary uh, experience with Tennessee State prior to me actually enrolling in Tennessee State in 1990 and then graduating with a degree in economics and finance. Uh, then went on to Vanderbilt University, got a master's degree in theology, returned to Tennessee State in 2009 to pursue a PhD in public policy and finished in 2017 uh, with that uh, PhD in public policy and administration. While pursuing this uh, degree in, in public policy, was elected to the Tennessee House of Representatives in 2012. At that time, I then had the largest number of colleges of any member of the General Assembly. I had seven colleges in my district. I have four HBCUs, American Baptist College, Fitch University, Meharry Medical College, Tennessee State University, uh, Trevecca Nazarene College, at the time also the Watkins College of Art and Design, and the Nashville Auto Diesel College. So this gave me a unique insight into uh, the higher education uh, pursuits that students were taking in Tennessee, because you had the wide range. If you think about from there, you had auto diesel college, a film and art college, a medical school, a liberal arts college, a religious uh, uh, institution, uh, and a four-year institution that taught everything. And so I got to see everything that private institutions were facing. I got to see what our HBCUs were facing. I got to see you know, what our specialty college were facing when it came to student rec recruitment, retention, and graduation. So uh, this put me on the education committee my freshman year in the legislature and allowed me again to see what dilemmas were they, they're facing in higher education. So now to the Tennessee State piece. Well, my father served in the General Assembly from 1968 to 1994, and he discovered that Tennessee State was being underfunded uh, with regard to their land grant dollars. And he, uh, along with uh, Representative Alvin King in 1970, produced a report uh, detailing the specifics of the underfunding of Tennessee State and listed recommendations to cure that underfunding. And unfortunately, when I elected in 2013, I discovered that some of the recommendations had not been followed. So I took upon the mantle to to finish the work and the report was the second wave of work. Uh, the first wave was really me discovering that Tennessee State was not getting its full measure of its state required matching funds for land grants. And I can go into more depth of that later on if you want me to go into it now, let me know. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's let's back it up for the people because I'm not sure that people understand the difference between land grant institutions and how they differ from other colleges. Can you speak to a little bit about what this land grant um, means and how that relates to HBCUs? Sure. So, shortly after the you know the, the Civil War, um, Justin Morrell, who was a member of Congress, realized that many of our citizens were not. Uh, getting a chance to go to college because colleges were for those who uh, had the financial means. And so he proposed that the federal government would grant land to the states uh, and allow those states to support those institutions and allow everyone who could uh, go to college to be able to go to college at a much lower rate. These would be public colleges, land given to them by the federal government and also there would be dollars given to the agricultural department 
that would be matched by those states. And so this institution may be getting a two-for-one investment, get money from the federal government, then money from the state government. Well, the problem was that in the southern states where these land grants were established, they, though they were public institutions, uh, found themselves denying African-Americans uh, the opportunity to enroll. Specifically, uh, they, uh, like in Tennessee, you had University of Tennessee, Knoxville, would not let African-Americans enroll in that college. So Justin Morrell, realizing that he needed to solve this problem, came back with a second Morrell Act of 1890 uh, with a specific provision in the bill that they could not refuse admission to the university based upon race. So 19 historically black colleges and universities were formed as land grant institutions. So wherever there was a land grant institution in that state, that state also had the option of establishing a second land grant institution specifically to educate the black population in that state, which to some degree, you know, still puts together that separate but unequal provision because that other institution was already up and running and getting its funding, and now this other institution is being formed for black students. Now, this is different from your private HBCUs that primarily don't get the bulk of their money from the state government, and it's different from a public HBCU that the state may establish that may get state funding, but there's never a required match from the federal government to the state government uh, matching requirements. So that's what makes land grants unique is this match requirement that the federal government says and the states accept this in accepting the land. And in this case, accepting the money that if they receive federal dollars for every dollar that's given to this institution, the state must give a dollar from the state government to match it. So with these land grant institutions, that's how they're traditionally funded through the federal government and a matching dollar from the state. Are there any other funds? Can you speak to the funding of HBCUs in general? Sure. And then we'll go most, to the most HBCUs uh, get a good amount of their funding from uh, Title III funds and, and Title III uh, of the Higher Education Act of 1965 provides money to HBCUs uh, to help them with recruitment of students to help them with providing uh, the requisite support and financial aid for students. Now, a lot of your private HBCUs that don't get any state funding uh, have to then provide uh, scholarships and, and dollars from the, the nonprofit world and, and heavy fundraising efforts. And so your private institutions, if you look at your HBCUs that are privately funded, most of them have a connection to a religious institution. Take, for example, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. We started schools in South Carolina. We have Edward Waters in Florida. Uh, we, we have uh, Wilberforce up in Ohio. And we, we have uh, Allen University in South Carolina. Right? We have Shorter College in Arkansas. And, of course, we, we have our, our school down in, in Texas. Uh, we also have uh, schools like Lane College, which was started by the CME Church. And you have your connection with Knoxville College, with the Presbyterian Church. And these are just examples in, in Tennessee of, of universities that are connected to a religious institution. The, 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 the important thing of that is to show you that these schools have to have a funding source. They have to have an institution that's willing to fund them continually. And, of course, you know, the Fisk University, uh, a private institution, uh, what, you know, had to find funding from other sources, which is why you had this, 
this fabled story about the Jubilee singers traveling around to raise funds. And so private institutions traditionally have a harder time raising funds because they don't have the consistent state funding. And you look at a university like Tennessee State University that has its state funding, which provides for maintenance of its buildings, which provides for academic program support. And so you have a Tennessee state that gets state funding versus an American Baptist College or Fisk University that doesn't get public funding uh, directly to it. Mm -hmm. So generally, when people talk about what I call the legacy of underfunding um, of of these historic minority serving uh, HBCUs, uh, you know, we talk about it sort of generally. In what ways have these both public and private HBCUs been shortchanged? Sure. So like with the private institutions, uh, they have been shortchanged because you're granting organizations that provide research dollars, uh, whether it's the National Institutes of Health or other organizations, they don't award these institutions the number of grants for research like you might find at your predominantly white institutions. And so your private institutions, like a Fisk University, like a Lane, like Lemoyne Owen, like a Knoxville College, uh, they don't get those funding dollars. Take, for example, Meharry Medical College and Vanderbilt University. Both had their seed planted uh, by the United Methodist Church, but the United Methodist Church gives uh, you know a huge amount of money to Vanderbilt and gives a small percentage to Meharry Medical College in its founding, right? So those institutions suffer from that perspective because the, the, the scale is unbalanced from their private funding. Also, you keep in mind the fundraising efforts. Uh, you don't have the uh, industries and you don't have the corporations that traditionally gave to our black institutions that were privately uh, private college, like you would with your private white colleges. And so with your land grants, it becomes an even bigger disparity because your land grant institutions that are supposed to receive this dollar to dollar match from the state government oftentimes aren't getting it. Take for Tennessee State, for example, you're talking about a situation where for Tennessee State, our committee researched and discovered that uh, the the land grant money that should have been going to Tennessee State was woefully being given there. And it's really a difficult thing for folks to conceive of because they think, well, well why wasn't it given? You say, well, we, we didn't have the power to make folks give us the money. These were legislators and governors who were making decisions. For example, Tennessee State in 1970, for example, there was $4,500,000 sent to Tennessee And the federal government asked the state of Tennessee, how do you want us to divide that money from the federal government sent to your two land grants? Tennessee said 75% goes to UT, 25% goes to Tennessee State based upon the population in the state. So at that time, 75% of the population was white, 25% was black. So you use that as a measure to say, this is how we shall give. So the percentage was there, 75, 25. That's the percent that's supposed to be given. In that year... Tennessee State did not get 25%. They got 1%. Of that $4,500,000, they got $55,000. They were supposed to get $1 million. So that's an example of how the unequal funding was done. Now, here's what makes it worse. Because the federal government said to the university and to the state, in order to keep your federal dollars, you must provide a state match. Otherwise, we're going to take our money back. 
the institutions oftentimes were forced to, out of their reserves, provide the state match themselves. So in that year, the Tennessee state was supposed to get a million dollars and they got $55,000. They then must find $945,000 to match the federal government investment in order to keep the investment from the federal government. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's the bigger crime. So, so tell me a little, let's talk specifically around Tennessee State University. You know, the work of, of this committee that you put together has been in national news about this disparity. Talk to us a little bit about what is going on there. You just uh, alluded to it a bit, but just explain to us what has happened with the funding at TSU. Yeah, so here's what happened. So I was elected in 2012. 2013, I get a visit from the, the dean of the School of Agriculture. He said, Representative Love, I really hope that you can help us get our state matching funds. So I said, well, Dean, y'all should have them by now. Right? Like, this is 2013. I knew that y'all had a problem getting them in the 70s because my father would talk about this when he would come home from work. But you all should have them now. He said, no, there's one more component left that we haven't gotten. And so the, the matching funds for land-grant institutions are in several categories. So research is one. Um, agricultural extension is another one. And then you have other uh, buckets. So what happened over the years, my father got several categories fulfilled. Senator Gilmore, when she was in the House of Representatives, got another category fulfilled. Uh, Dr. Barbara Cooper, when she was working with the Black Caucus, got another category fulfilled. But there was still one category left that had not been fulfilled. And that was a category that held about a million four hundred thousand dollars in it. So we worked and got that one fulfilled, which meant that going forward, Tennessee State does get its full match. For the first time since 1912, it's starting, it's gotten its full match of state funds. So I asked the question of myself, the Lord put in my spirit, how much money were they deprived of all those other years, right? How much money were they deprived of, which would also tell us how much money Tennessee State had to put up out of its own coffers to make the match. So kept pressing for this issue and, and for many years just did not get much traction because uh, committee chairs would change over finance department, committee chairs would change over education department, new governor elected, new speaker of the house elected. So uh, a policy window opened last summer when George Floyd was murdered. Many of us in the legislature was highly upset about the murder and uh, the Speaker of the House kept asking me, well, you know, we understand the racial injustice going on across the country, but, you know, we really don't have those kind of problems here in Tennessee. I said, well, Speaker, let me tell you, we do. Let me give you a prime example. He said, he said, he said show me what is happening in present day in Tennessee that is clearly state-sanctioned discrimination. So I said, oh, thank you for opening that door. Uh, Tennessee State University and UT Knoxville's unequal funding. He said, what do you mean? I said, Speaker, TSU just got its funding for its land-grant match two or three years ago. And he looked astonished, but I, here's what I understand. TSU's not in their district. They got their own issue. They got their own constituent issues and, and their own concerns. It takes someone who's going to keep pressing the issue and keep pressing it. And so the speaker said, he said, listen, I've heard you talk about this from time to time, but I thought it was resolved. He said, tell you what, Harold, so we can really get down to the bottom of this. We're going to form a committee to study this unequal funding so we can finally find out what's going on with it. So 
I was put on the committee, never thought in a million years I would end up the chair of the committee. Mm-hmm. Made, me, made me the co-chair. Senator Briggs from the Senate was made the co-chair. And Senator Briggs said to me, he said, Representative Love, I think you have a better grasp of this than any of us. You just chair the committee yourself and I'll follow your lead. So I've been chairing the committee since November and want to put together a a plan to study, right? To first start off with what HBCUs are, right? To have the committee understand what land grants are, right? Mm-hmm. Then have the committee look at what we knew was the gap in funding from at least you know, 1957 to 2016, just to show the difference in when UT would get some money, uh, UT might have a required match of $25 million from the state and because they got $25 million from the federal government. But in that same year, they got $60 million from the state. So they were over their match, whereas Tennessee State was getting under their match. So we, we had that presentation. Then we had Dr. Glover come in because I wanted to talk about how Tennessee State kept their doors open without getting their match. So she was able to talk about how just pure by miracles – Tennessee State kept buildings maintained. Tennessee State kept their endowment afloat. Tennessee State kept scholarships to students. Tennessee State kept funding teachers. So then the final thing was we wanted to show how much Tennessee State should have been paid. So we had the the number that UT was given, and we discovered that in the budget books for the state of Tennessee, when we saw an entry for UT Knoxville's land grant payment, Next to it, there was nothing listed for Tennessee State. So we tracked that down from 1957 to 2007 and discovered that at at minimum $544 million was what Tennessee State should have gotten in those those years. So how does this disparity happen and how is it allowed to persist over decades? So, you know, when, when, when African-Americans talk about systemic problems, we, we, we use that term because if it happened one time, it's a one-time event. Mm-hmm. If it happens two times, it's um, a second event occurring. Three times, it's a pattern. Mm-hmm. Four times, it's a sequence, right? And you can go on and use other words to describe it. And then at some point, when it's 20 years in, it's part of the system. So Tennessee State not being funded properly in 1914, one-time event. Right. Not being funded properly in 1915, two times. 1917, it's a pattern. 50 years, is systemic. Right. And these are things like systemic discrimination when you're talking about the fact that a institution that is primarily open for all races. So that's the beauty of this. Tennessee State wasn't just open to educate African-Americans, but what the language said was you can't discriminate against African-Americans. So Tennessee State has has educated African-Americans, Asian-Americans, Latin-Americans, European-Americans. Native Americans, Tennessee State educated every American uh, race and ethnicity, whereas UT and other land grants haven't. And so we talk about the fact that you can't call it anything but systemic when it's baked into the cake. And so a new governor comes in, 
it's not on his radar to help Tennessee State because there are other issues. But when it's raised and it's ignored, then it's systemic. New Speaker of the House comes in in 1940, right? Issue is raised. It's still systemic. 1970, Harold Love and Alvin King produced a report saying, hey, this is a problem. It needs to be fixed. Their report was shelved all these years. I just happened to have a copy at my house because my father had a copy of the report. And I use that as the base to say, you've heard this story before and ignored it. So what's next? What, what are the next steps for TSU? So what helps us is what you alluded to earlier. The, the Maryland uh, settlement helps us tremendously because what it says is mm-hmm. another state has admitted its, its wrongdoing of these universities. They put together a 10-year plan because it would be irresponsible for me to ask for a lump sum payment of $544 million to any institution. And I think a 10-year plan gives us the opportunity to put a payment plan together so we can also measure the progress. So what's it look like to put a plan together that says $50 million a year for the next you know, 10 years, $50 million the first year goes toward funding new academic programs to increase the number of, let's say, African-American doctors in a pipeline from Tennessee State to other medical colleges, Meharry, um, Howard University, Morehouse, Vanderbilt, right, UT, Knoxville, whatever the school is. What's it look like to also say the next, uh, the next year, year two, $50 million goes toward infrastructure at Tennessee State to shore up the buildings and to properly maintain them, right? Year three, $50 million goes toward an endowment for student scholarships to ensure that students can stay in school. Year four, $50 million goes toward another new academic building, right? So what you're doing is you're measuring now by year five, you've measured the impact of the first $50 million because you see that student retention is up. In year five, you see the effect of the $50 million for new academic programs because you're attracting new students. In year five, you see the results of the buildings being maintained because you see the repairs going on. And so by the time you get to year 10 and the final payment is made, you're seeing the results of years one through nine. Right, right. So I want to I want to double down on something and I want to go back to um, something else. So I want to double down on sort of this state that TSU was in. So TSU, in order to keep getting these federal dollars, sort of has to lie, you know, to the federal government to say that it got its state funding. And it does so by coming up with other money somewhere else. Is that what exactly is happening? I'm I'm trying to speak to... TSU TSU covers for the state. Mm -hmm. Essentially, TSU says to the federal government... um, the state gave us our money. We're, we're good. And, and so one would say, well, why would TSU do that? Why wouldn't they just report the state's in the seat to the federal government? One, uh, because they'd lose their federal funding. Uh, two, because they might then anger these legislators in the state who have already proven to be punitive because they haven't given them the money. So why not just hope that the next year they might give you the money if you pay the money out of your own reserves this year? So what happens is you, you go through this for 10 years, a new president comes in, you know, let's say Dr. Hale says to Dr. Davis, listen, listen, I'm trying to get this money from the state. They're not giving it, but maybe you have better luck, right? Walter Davis 
does it for, you know, his time there and says to President Humphreys, hey, listen, agriculture money, I've been working on it. Uh, we're getting some of it, not all of it. I know you got other issues going on, but just put on your radar. They're not giving us our money. You know, Humphreys, you know, th- th- then, uh, you know, tells the next person coming in, uh, same thing. And then uh, Otis Floyd, you know, tries to get taken, taken care of. Um, James Hepburn tries to get it taken care of, right? Melvin Johnson tries to get it taken care of. Portia Shields tries to get it taken care of. And then you got Glenda Glover, right? So you got presidents who are trying to get it taken care of while also trying to fundraise, while also trying to retain students, while also trying to, wait for it, get your basic state funding. So this is, this is, just, this is just a horrible, horrible um, position for these institutions to be in. So you, you have to, in order to keep the federal funding, you have to, you know, tell a mistruth to the federal government that says the state has done the right thing. All the while, the state goes on and does what it wants to do, right. never having to answer. And what's for, worse for me is in those years when they were underfunding Tennessee State, they were going beyond the requirement for UT Knoxville. Literally, in one year, UT Knoxville should have gotten $25 million, but got 69 Tennessee State should have gotten eight, but got six, right? Uh, but the horrible thing about it, it's worse yet for other HBCU land grants. Take Prairie View down there in Texas. Texas A&M, which is their land grant, is on located on oil-rich land. Mm-hmm. Texas, Texas A&M's endowment is $13.5 billion. Prairie View's endowment was 95 million until McKenzie Scott gave them 50 million. So now they have a $130 million endowment. What's the disparity there? The disparity is that schools like Prairie View, just like Tennessee state had to, you know, forego putting money in their endowment to make their state match. Schools like Prairie View had to find other means to make their state match. And so this consistent story across the country for the 1890 land grants and the federal government even gave a wink and a nod to help these land grants out by saying, in those years, if your state can't pay it, request a waiver, and you only have to pay half of the requirement. And mm-hmm. in some of those years, the state still didn't pay. So the federal government kind of knew that, that there was going to be situations where some states were not going to do the right thing. Because the states had already done the wrong thing by denying admission to the first land grants uh, by African-Americans. Mm-hmm. Goodness. So tell me a little bit about, you know, you know, you just mentioned before that Maryland helped the, the case in Maryland helps TSU, but the Maryland case is a little bit different from TSU's case. Can you talk about the differences and what happened in Maryland sure. versus what's happening here? Maryland's case is one of those situations where the HBCUs are saying to the state, we have not been given a fair chance to compete with the other institutions because we have not been given the chance to have academic programs compared to theirs, right? Mm-hmm. So we want to, for example, if we want to start an engineering school, you denied us that chance and you let the other institution have an engineering school. So we couldn't recruit students for engineering, right? So Maryland's case is one of them saying, you did not treat us fairly. And, and it, it still helps... Tennessee state because it demonstrates that a state entity 
can admit that previous what I call stewards of the state did not do right by the state's public institutions. And now there is a cure in place to restore them. That gives us the opportunity to say someone else has already done it. So it's not like Tennessee can say, well, no one else has ever admitted it. No, Maryland admitted it. Maryland admitted that they did wrong by the HBCUs because that's really what happened with Tennessee State and the University of Tennessee Nashville campus that is now the Avon Williams campus. Uh, It was going to be a situation where competing programs would get funded differently. So the, for example, the mathematics program at UT Nashville was going to get funded better than the mathematics program at Tennessee State. So TSU had a case to make to say, you can't have two institutions of higher learning in the same city and expect them both to thrive, particularly when one is an HBCU, because we show, we've no history of the state underfunding or giving unfair advantage to other schools. So how do you, how would you say that this lack of appropriate funding has affected HBCUs as a whole and then maybe TSU specifically? One way is this. The University of Tennessee Knoxville's endowment is a billion dollars. That's more than all the 1890 land grant endowments combined. University of Tennessee in Knoxville. Yes. Endowment is $1 billion. $1 billion. More than all the 1890 land grants combined. If you combine all the endowments with 1890 land grants, it's still less than one school, UT Knoxville. Right? So why is that important? Because your endowment allows you to provide scholarships for students. Your endowment allows you off the interest to provide maintenance dollars for your own building instead of waiting for state dollars. Your endowment allows you to attract a professor uh, that can have their, you know, their, a chair of excellence endowed for them to teach. To, so that means you're going to attract more students because I want to go to school where Michael Eric Dyson is teaching. I want to go to a school where uh, Cornell West is, is, is teaching. I want to go to a school where this renowned professor in chemistry is teaching. Well, you can't do that at HBCUs because you've been denied the opportunity to have a large endowment because you had to put your money into this state match because your state was not paying it. So UT, and, and again, let me be very clear about this. It was never a UT versus TSU situation, but we had to list UT up as an example because Take in Tennessee, you have 95 counties. University of Tennessee has agriculture extension agents in all 95 counties. Tennessee State has them in less than 60 counties. Because Tennessee State does not have the funds to pay those extension agents to be in 95 counties, which means that black farmers who may need help from a minority serving institution aren't going to get the help because Tennessee State's not in their county. Right. Or small farmers might not get the help because a Tennessee state is not in their county. So what's next? Like what can HBCU advocates, what can leaders, what can we do to address this? So we have two more meetings left. Uh, We got a meeting in May and a meeting in June. The meeting in May, we're going to look to have the uh, higher education commission, Tennessee state, and the uh, Commissioner for Finance Administration come probably in June. 
the May meeting want to sit down and go over all this stuff because, you know, one thing that we did have a question about was the percent of funding split, you know, whether the 75-25 split was still appropriate and whether it was still needed. Right. And, you know, we need to review that and see if that's the case. Also, we want to verify that the legislation that was written about the funding was still valid. Now, I'll tell you honestly, uh, I've discovered something here of late that actually may shed more light on the situation than I had intended. Uh, we discovered the 1913 law that Tennessee wrote about the percent of money to be split. And all this time, we thought that the only money coming to the universities from the state, from the federal government, was for the programs in agriculture. We've discovered, though, that from 18, from 1907 to 1995, there was a bucket of money coming to the states for just the land grants themselves outside of the money for the match. But I don't have time to research all that. And so I'm just going to uh, work on this, the matching portion and and let another generation or someone else research this other piece. But we'll work oh, on that. Wow. So you've carried, you picked it up from where your your father left off and now you, you're going to leave this other piece for someone else. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to pick up. Gosh, this is just so so incredibly complicated and I and I, I wish things were different, but we see the effects of this every day. I just went into um actually uh the building I think named after your father yes. uh, two weeks ago. Yeah. Um and it was in a state of disrepair. Exactly. It's no wonder there's no money to fix it immediately and expeditiously because it hasn't been getting money for decades upon decades. Yes. So and that's not uncommon. Um, and, and and I hope you, you ask what can people do? I would hope that students that hear this might be inclined not to give TSU or any other than 1890s a pass, right? But to understand and appreciate the struggle that they had to keep the door on the hinge of the crouch hall, right? Mm -hmm. To keep the light bulbs in the socket of uh, the women's building, right? To keep the water running and electricity flowing through the campus because they literally not only did not receive $544 million, but they had to find $544 million to compensate for what the state didn't pay. And this went to, to the match. And so that's why if you go on any HBCU campus as a land grant, I guarantee you, the best looking buildings are in the ag building. Mm -hmm. The best looking areas because they were being shored up to, to kind of, you know, to, to save the money. Uh, so outside of HBCU alumni, the larger society, I think, can be supportive of these initiatives. Call your elected officials, call your uh, state representative and your state senator. Let them know that you support these HBCUs getting the funding that they were supposed to get. See, we're not asking for extra funding. We're just saying, right. give us what we were supposed to have gotten. And I think that's what needs to be the message also. We're just saying this was promised and was not paid. And I think what we'll start to see is a turnaround for HBCUs at the 1890s. And then what you'll also see is probably more funding for our other non-land grant public HBCUs. 
So this is the question I ask every single guest, and of course, I'm going to ask it of you. And that is, what is the one thing you wish more people knew about HBCUs? I wish more people knew. I wish people could go back in time and walk with these presidents as they had to maneuver through these difficulties and keep the doors open. And so I I wish more people knew about the successes of HBCUs, right? I wish they, more people knew about the values and morals that HBCUs instill in us. I'll tell you right now, I'm a more successful legislator because of registration at Tennessee state. Oh, listen, I, I'll hold on to a piece of paper for the whole session. (laughs) Cause somebody going to say that we didn't agree to put that in the bill. Yes, we did. Here's, here it is right here in writing. We we agreed that was from six months ago. That's right. I kept it the whole six months. Uh, and and so I, I hope that people would know, uh, the most more about the successes and appreciate the 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 opportunity you get at HBCU where for me HBCUs also prepare you for the world because the the networks that you make the, the friends you make the family that you develop there all of that sustains you through life and that's why homecoming is so celebrated people understand this it it is it is therapeutic for you to come back and see that Ashley still is making it right to look across the stadium and see that that William is still making it to look across the pep rally and see that uh John and and Jerry and Debbie are still making it in life and it inspires you that you also can make it because they are making it. And we can go through the list of inventors, right? To talk about the wonderful things that have come out of HBC. But I think that's too easy, right? To just list inventors, even though there are so many. But I think people need to know about the genius and, and, and the love that it enables the black folks you see out there surviving. Uh, it's because of HBCUs they went to. Right. I always think about just in the city of Nashville, it, the city of Nashville is led by graduates of Tennessee State University. You're absolutely right. Period. Period. <laughs> uh, but not enough people talk about it. They don't. So I appreciate you um, spending the time, taking the time to talk about this very important topic. Um, I hope that we can um, have you back to follow up so we can learn and discuss thoroughly the results. Absolutely. Hopefully you'll have good news and say that somehow TSU is going to get $544 million and Prairie View is going to get what it is owed. Yes. FAMU and Alabama A&M, North Carolina A&T, all of them. Hopefully, you know, this this case in Maryland will set off a shockwave where other states will step up to the plate and do the right thing. I hope so. Uh, so I thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for the opportunity. And I wish you much success in what you all are doing because what you're doing also is helping because 
it is educating people on HBCUs and, and it's just not a black college. Now these, these colleges have a story behind them and, and that's why they were formed and, and everybody needs to know that story so they can, they can thrive also. Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, thank you all so much for listening to this episode of On the Yard. I hope you learned something. I hope you uh, take the time to go call your state legislator and find out what's going on um, and tune in next week uh, for another episode. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of On the Yard, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. R.W. Jones is the nation's only strategic communications and issues management firm explicitly focused on higher education, serving more than 50 colleges and universities nationwide. Check back for next week's episode of On the Yard, where we'll give you another dose of HBCU leadership and culture. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of On the Yard, powered by the R.W. Jones Agency. R.W. Jones is the nation's only strategic communications and issues management firm explicitly focused on higher education, serving more than 50 colleges and universities nationwide. Check back for next week's episode of On the Yard, where we'll give you another dose of HBCU leadership and culture.